Hey, I'm Sadie. And I'm Zamie. And this is I Ain't Got Time to Read, a podcast for color folks who have considered doing the readings, but the time in the day wasn't enough. This season, we'll discuss the book, Black Food Matters, Racial Justice in the Wake of Food Justice, edited by Hannah Garth and Ashante M. Reese. Chapter 3, Nurturing the Revolution, The Black Panther Party and the Early Seeds of the Food Justice Movement, by Annaline Hope Hasberg. The Black Panther Party, originally known as the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, was an organization formed in the mid-60s to protect the rights, safety, and well-being of the Black community against police, racial, and food violence. This chapter discusses how the Black Panther Party created revolutionary organizing tools and created the template for modern-day food justice efforts. The Black Panther Party was able to provide critical services that ultimately were adopted as federal assistance programs for all Americans. This chapter also discusses the Sankofa Project, which documents the Black Panther Party's success specifically in Los Angeles. The Black Panther Party they believe that um, food, healthcare, education, and access to land and housing and clothes are rights, not privileges. Um, what do you think of that? Do you agree? Yes, I absolutely do agree. I think learning about their movement and then reading everything that we have been lately, it's just reaffirmed that people should have their basic needs met. Mm-hmm. That should be that should be basic human understanding and compassion. Mm. Yeah. Mm. What about you? You know what? So definitely, definitely, um, I think that especially when it comes to housing, the more that I learn about how um, the housing industry is structured in America and how mm-hmm. um, other countries are doing it different, differently, and it it allows for more housing equity. Yes. Um, I, I do have a, I have a, yes, 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 with an asterisk, because I think that, um, so when we say, like, it's a right, not a privilege, Mm. are we saying that it should be, like, you should have easy access, or are we saying that it's an automatic given, or what, what does a right, not a privilege mean to you? I see. For me, a right means it's automatically given. It's mm. something that in my fantasy ideal dream world, mm. we have access to drinking water. We have access to say mm. we need a place to live. There are there are places built and ready for us to live. Um, and I don't mean like the fanciest mansions or, mm. you know, really nice houses I mean um, incorporating more uh, just like singles housing uh, Mm. similar to what you think of a dorm where you have maybe one or two people in a room they share Mm. bathrooms um, and then a larger group shares a kitchen and you have more this community um, of people where you can live and then just 
more multifamily housing and not just individual homes. Um, And I think that's a great way to foster community as well. Instead of everyone kind of being stuck on their own little islands, you have families that live and work. They probably, you know, work next to each other. They live next to each other. They interact more and they're able to form more of that community. Um, But I definitely think that rights, it should be something that you just have access to. Like for water, I know in France, all of, in Paris specifically, sorry, it's only Paris, the, um, there are water fountains everywhere and water is always free. And it's, mm. you know, it's uh, certified and it's cleaned and, you know, there's um, not unhealthy toxins or chemicals in it. And they're, you know, they're promoting, um, you know, people to have access to water, even if they don't have homes, they still have access to clean water. Um, mm. so I think, I think that's really important. I don't think, um, it should be something that, you know, you have to go through, uh, like a really dense legal system and like apply and get it. I think it's just kind of like, a, okay, you need this. We have something set up to support our community members and we can provide this. Wow. I love that. Um, I feel like you just helped me. I like the way you painted the picture. Because I'm trying to divest from this idea that people always have to earn things, but it's more mm-hmm. than just like earn it as in like, oh, I did like a reasonable amount of labor or whatever, but it's almost the, I think, internalized ideals of, of bootstrapping, which I know mm-hmm. is not real. Mm-hmm. And so um, even at work, we use, we structure our programs under the model of housing first so you don't wait till people like quote unquote earn their keep or they become good enough so they're not like substance abusers and stuff like that before Mm -hmm. they get access to housing the 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 idea is that you get housing first and then you can work to meet those other like needs Mm -hmm. and I'm really trying to like internalize that to help restructure how I see the world the thing that I think the um the struggle within me happens is because I think, okay, pre like um, industrial revolution, right? Like say we're on some like hunter gatherer type. type Mm -hmm. We have to provide labor and work communally to make our needs met to get our needs met. So I think there's, there's like a struggle between like, okay, people do have to provide labor Mm-hmm. but then also people shouldn't have to like it shouldn't be like like you said like this um overly bureaucratic process I don't even want to feel like people have to earn like a right to get water stuff like that mm-hmm. but I still haven't reconciled the true the two totally do you see what I'm saying absolutely yeah 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 I think one of the ways I'm trying to think about it because I also also have definitely internalized those thoughts of having to earn everything. Um, But I also try to keep in mind that we are in an advanced society. And so, Uh, and I think that's what kind of gets me. I'm like, you know, everyone complains about how robots will take over their jobs and they're, you know, they're really worried about job security and things. And I think we could shape a world in the future where number one, we work less because we do have Uh these technological advances. Um, 
and we have a better quality of life because of these technological advances that we can give better just overall care to people. So that's what I try to keep in my mind. Hmm, I love that. I love that. And I think if you ask me in another way, I would claim these to be like my ideals. But mm. honestly, I think I'm striving to, to be there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because, yeah. yeah, I think though the capitalistic world we live in, though, also shapes um, our perspective and how we like shape our morals or, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, trying to divest, divest, divest. No, but yeah, I love that. Uh-huh. I love that. I love that. Yeah. So in the book, they discuss how the Black Panther Party uh, recognized hunger as one of the greatest forms of oppression in the U.S. And this was back in the 60s. So what are your thoughts um, on why you think there hasn't been any change in the last 80 years? Yeah, I think <clears throat> I think, number one, um, there is no profit there's little to no profit incentive for Mm. things to for a better system to be in place Mm. (laughs) excuse me um so i think that's number one and then i also think that to some degree like i noticed whenever i worked um so i think i mentioned this before on the podcast but i worked briefly um in a, a prison in a male prison and i was the one of the food food service supervisors and what I noticed was integral to keeping the control in the prisons is to always keep the, the inmates, like, slightly hungry. Mm. So the food was structured where they had to make a certain caloric um, mark. But the thing is, like, if you ate that, especially if you're, like, a... I don't know how real this stuff is, but if you're, like, a full-grown man, right, mm-hmm. and you're, like... you lead at least a relatively active life you know like you're moving around and stuff yeah the food that they got uh, it just uh, would barely like like you might be satisfied but you probably at least need some snacks some snacks to like keep you good I and see. dinner was yeah and dinner was like at i think 4 p.m and i think breakfast was like at five hmm so you have like quite a bit of the day, like if you like if you stay up and you don't go to sleep early, mm-hmm. like quite a bit of the day. And so a lot of the the inmates were so preoccupied with like getting food, sneaking food, getting money for commissary, bargaining yeah. for commissary. And I was like, oh, there's this whole other industry that keeps them preoccupied and inundated with like these kind of low level needs. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the time, not to be too, cons- you know, above com- too much of a conspiracy theorist, but I think that that's part of what keeps, I think, social sec- social control so that we don't start advocating for um, our higher needs, like a better right. work-life balance, like uh, mm-hmm. equity and health, stuff like that. Right. Um, because we're preoccupied with these like lower level things of like hey i live in a food desert and all i can like the only store i have access to get groceries at is like a dollar general mm-hmm. um, yeah so i think it's about i think it's about those things yeah, yeah. man yeah thanks for sharing that i just oof, mm-hmm. gave me a lot of feels a lot of feels yeah because I know a couple people that have been imprisoned and you hear about that they're like well i need money can you put money on my books and you hear that a lot and I didn't realize that 
there was like a base caloric intake that they were basing at everything after to keep them hungry. Because if anything, you would think that would anger people um, to always be hungry. But then, like you were saying, that it creates that need for them to, you know, they need food. That's your base need on the Maslow's hierarchy. So, of course, that focus is diverted. And so, oh, my gosh, I didn't know that. That's just. So let me clarify. I think technically they use this caloric number to say, oh, Mm. we make this mark. Mm -hmm. But, like, literally breakfast might be, like, a boiled egg and then something else. And then, so, like, a boiled egg and then, like, let's say a piece of fruit. And then to technically make the caloric intake, it might be a spoonful of butter. Like, literally. That was, like, Uh, when you're, like, so what the, what the uh, hell? But technically it makes the marker for this calorie count. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And what what do you do with that butter, though? Exactly. I remember specifically one day I got in trouble by one of the wardens because the the menu, like, was, like, literally, I remember it was a boiled egg, something else that didn't go with a boiled egg, and then a Mm. spoonful of butter. And I didn't put the butter, I didn't have the, the, the team put the butter on it because I was, like, I thought it was a type. I literally thought it was a type. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then I got in trouble because, number one, I didn't completely follow the menu, but then I got in trouble. But then he was also mad that that was the menu that the company set because, you know, that's like a bunch of bullshit to be like, if I gave you a boiled egg Mm -hmm. and a spoonful of butter. I know people are like, keto, keto, keto now, but, like, Mm. if you don't have options. Keto people still need a spoonful of butter, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um... But, like, if you don't have other options, yeah. And for the people that didn't have, you know, other access to, to, to funding and if you were, you know, yeah. you make pennies on the dollars for working, commissary super expensive. Like, you yeah. really get caught up in this world of, like, how can I get some extra food? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You would be. That makes absolute sense. Yeah. 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 Mm. yeah. yeah. That angers me. But, Yeah. But, yeah, I think you did at, at the perfect point of, you know, if we are worried about where we're getting our food, if we don't have access to food, then that's going to be our focus. And just like you were saying, we're not going to focus on the other inequities that we have to face mm-hmm. every single day. And so mm-hmm. it it's a base need. And so for mm-hmm. people, government, to exploit that in ways, it it makes sense of why it seems like we're very slow to change and evolve in the U.S. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I just want to mention something about the Maslow hierarchy of needs. Back to that conference that I just attended. Mm-hmm. We also learned that um, Maslow, I'm a huge fan of that theory. I'm a big fan of Maslow. I actually was going to get a tattoo. Well, mm. of not of the hierarchy of needs, but it was, <laughs> it has like a component of that. Nice. Yeah, but I also just learned that um, Abraham Maslow spent a lot of time with the Blackfoot natives, uh, I think, in the Hmm. Canada area. And that's where he got, he borrowed um, a lot of the elements of his theory from, except the native pyramid was, um, so you know, his starts like with these kind of like low level basic needs and the pinnacle is self-actualization, right? Yeah. Um, theirs actually is not a pyramid. It's actually a teepee. 
Oh. And um, the base level is three tiers. The base level is self-actualization. Oh, wow. And then, yeah. Um, and then the, the second tier is community actualization. And mm. then the top tier is culture, cultural perpetuity. So, like, mm. continuing, like, the culture and stuff like that. Yeah. Super interesting. Number one, I think the difference between maybe, like, a Euro-American Western ideal of, like, what our highest aspiration should be. And it should be, like, us being all that we can be and that's like the pinnacle mm-hmm. opposed to um the native perspective which is more communal based of like of course you have to build the self so yeah. that you can contribute to the community and help the community be all that they can be to, mm-hmm. to also then continue the culture pretty interesting yeah absolutely and what strikes me is that there's it's, it's sad that the native period uh pyramid doesn't even have like water shelter food yes (laughs) yes i'm sure those were things in their society they had created a given right so that didn't need to be explicitly stated and that um that's just definitely something that we have to deal with in this eurocentric colonized world that we live in wow that's such a great point that i don't think i necessarily thought about because, like, why would you put that if it's, like, uh, yeah, I mean, everybody's going to mm-hmm. eat because that's we have to take care of each other. Right. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay. The West African concept of Sankofa is about learning from the past to build toward the future. So, um, number one, how does it fit with um, our history of enslavement? And then how do we also, like, maybe – drawn some of the things that the Black Panther Party did in the past to start to recreate our future. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, what can we learn? What can we, what can we learn from enslaved Africans and the ways that they practice um, a covert food sovereignty by, like you mentioned uh, last episode, about like bringing different seeds and crops and and things like that. I also read in Michael Tweedy's book how uh, so I don't know if you experienced this but have you like went to church especially like with the black side of your family mm-hmm. and like before church they put on like some slow cooker food maybe this is across the board but like some slow cooker food and then like it cooks like either all night or like all day where you're at church and then you come home you like some really good food that's like been slow cooking sometimes it was then the church that we went to is more so like a fourth or like a half of the church would all go to the same restaurant mm. afterwards and we would Got all it. eat together. You know, you'd like mm. push all the tables together and you'd eat. Um, yeah. But there would definitely be days where they would, uh, my granny would cook or it was like a all day church thing. So yeah, there yes. would be like food that was cooked and, um, and then you just pretty much stay there all day and always eat together, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I love that. Um, the reason I brought it up is because Michael was saying that, uh, like, that food practice of that, like, low and slow food came, mm. came from um, the enslavement time, how, like, 
people would like put on food either that night or in the morning and then while they were out working all day mm. um, would be like cooking and then when they got home they got to like have a quality meal together stuff like that and like this like just this sliver of time where they got to kind of be together and eat like really quality food and nourish each other physically emotionally spiritually stuff like that yeah um yeah so what can we what can we borrow from the past as we create the present and the future yeah i think there are there are so many things that we can take from them i think a lot of just what i've been trying to do and what we've been trying to do is learn what they are because mm-hmm. like there are so many actions i think that we do that we don't understand just like you were saying with the slow cooking food like i would have never known that mm-hmm. that was how like my ancestors cooked the food until you had said that until someone was mm-hmm. like this is what they used to do and this is what we do now so just kind of like understanding those traditions as traditions mm-hmm. instead mm-hmm. of something like oh we're just going to do this today like thinking about the intentionality behind it I think we I think one of the biggest things we can learn from I'm going to say actually pre-transatlantic slave trade, this idea, or during, I think just from the past, we can, we should reinsert this communal eating thing. Mm. Um, I know a lot of West Africans, um, I don't know if you've like been in spaces where you like number one, eat with your hand. Have you seen that? A couple times, yeah. Yeah, you eat with your hand and it's very like communal, so you might have like there might be like a common pot of like stew or whatever and then you might have like your own like say something like fufu or something mm-hmm. you have like your own and then like you eat together and I think sometimes it's hard for me to take in because of like my western ideal of what probably I think high like it's hygienic mm. but I think yeah I think that's probably like an unfair judgment um but I think that just that togetherness and that intimacy of like hey we're eating together we we could borrow from mm-hmm. and I think it's a lot harder specifically when you're eating with your hands like you're not going to be eating with your hands especially from a common pot and like being on your phone or being like super distracted like you're right yeah so I think just borrowing from that, like eating together, being present, really mm-hmm. engaging, um, nurturing relationships with each other. I think we could definitely uh, take from that. Borrow from yeah. That. yeah. Yeah, that's really beautiful. It's funny you say that because I also had a similar experience when I did that study abroad in India. We mm-hmm. were with a family and um, it was like there were... I think there were like 10 students. I was the only brown black person there and the rest were white, of course. And we were eating with the Indian family and they were eating with their hands and they were like, you guys should try it. You should eat with your hands. And, you know, everyone was like, no, we're not doing this. And so since no one was doing it, I was like, okay, I'm not going to do it. Like, even though I was like, oh, maybe it wouldn't be that bad. Like you were saying, it just, when you're trained to always use utensils and you know, people are like, no, you don't eat with your hands. You learn that, like, as a kid, like, stop eating with your hands, use your utensils. Mm-hmm. Then it, it just seems such, like, a disconnect. But then when I was in Zimbabwe, we would do um, – I was staying with a group 
of young people my age. And um, every night we would all cook dinner together. Well, I would just help them because they were, you know, doing actually like doing the majority of the preparing, but everyone would help. And then we would sit down and we'd eat with our hands and it was completely normal and it felt natural. And, you know, I was like, Mm -hmm. this is great. Like this, I have no issue with this. And it was, Mm -hmm. yeah, like I was not in that environment where there were like very, very, very white people that were like, no, we will not, absolutely (laughs) not try this. And it was just a much safer space where I would be like, okay, I'll try this. And I was like, oh, this is totally normal. This is fine. Like, so normal. I love the fact that you, like, got to be like, I I, I love the fact that you said it was a safe space. Yes. You know, the crazy thing is a bunch of um, communities around the world, number one, eat with their hands. I think this is one of those internalized Yes. You know, like European quote unquote high culture, like where they just like demonize other cultures because, like, we eat with utensils because we're sophisticated. Mm-hmm. You eat with your hands. But I think what it it ultimately always comes back to is um, like white supremacy shuns all these um, different ways of living that don't align. Right. But then that same white supremacy that, like, like, deems people experts on things like um what am I saying conducts these like studies and research years and decades and centuries later only to see only to like quote-unquote scientifically validate these originally original practices to say Mm. oh yeah yeah like that's really beneficial (laughs) right yeah (laughs) I looked up an article because I came across this a couple months ago and they were talking about how actually eating with their hands is super beneficial and I looked up, and I just looked up the reason mm, why. Yeah. Number one, it can help with overeating because it's like a more involved. Oh, process. interesting. Okay. Yes. Then also, your your hands and your fingers they have these. Um, it says it has normal flora is bacteria bacteria found on the palms and fingers that protects the skin and body from harm, harmful microbes in the environment. So when you ingest it, it helps with your immune system to not be susceptible to these um, microbes and stuff that are in the fu- that are in the environment in general. Huh. And then okay. it's like when people sit around and eat like maybe curry and rice with their hands, it's like, ew, that's so like, that's so um, unsophisticated or whatever, right? But then the same thing, but we still eat finger food. And we yeah. ate like chicken fries. fries it's like no chicken big nuggets. deal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All the time. In what ways do you think you practice a food sovereignty? I don't. So I don't know if I can truly say that I practice food sovereignty because I don't grow my own food mm. or participate in community gardening. Um, I think the only thing I can say that right now in this moment I know that I do is just like you know uh, have these discussions with you read about them follow a couple groups on Instagram um, and just kind of educate myself I think that's the current way I'm practicing Mm -hmm. yeah because I was thinking maybe like you know buying food in bulk instead of buying the individual packages is a form Um, kind of just like trying to reduce the plastic and even just reduce 
and the name brand association with food. Um, yeah, that's hard, and I would think you would think that it wouldn't be like mm. great value or not necessarily of lower quality. Right. No. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. What about you? Because right after I, I asked the question, I was like, God dang, I don't, I don't know that I do. I think probably only in food sovereignty. Um, maybe only in the ways that I shop. Mm, not as much as I, nah, not as much as I would like to. I do buy like some bulk some bulk things like bulk spices and mm-hmm. and stuff like that mm-hmm. not as not as much as I would like to because I I am super hung up on the I'm a Whole Foods girl even though I don't have Whole Foods <laughs> money it's like because it feels like an ex- yeah. yeah but doesn't Whole Foods have their own their own brands as well they do they, so do. Like, they do you know those store brands are not in my mind, store brands are not a name brand. In a way, they're very much a, a discount brand. And I don't like mm-hmm. not to like, shade. I think the companies make equal quality food and products mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the name brand companies. Honestly, they're probably manufactured in the exact same place. And they're just, just a different <laughs> label. Yeah. So it's, it's all a scam. Um, yeah, really, it's very much so. Mm-hmm. I think I was. I think I say no. I don't have much as much confidence in my answer because I know I have so many more options to be like shopping like with local farmers and stuff like that. Mm. And, I, and I'm not super intentional about doing that. Mostly because like you know, like if you get like fresh vegetables and um, fruit every week. You have, you need to eat that like fast. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, agreed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Yeah. So I, I want to be more intentional about it, but as of right now, I haven't been the most intentional. But yeah, mm-hmm. I do buy a lot of like, especially if I've tried it, I'll, I'll buy the quote unquote off brand. I like to look at the ingredients. Most of the time, they're the exact same. If mm-hmm. they're the exact same or really similar, I'll just get the the off brand. Smart. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, the the farmers markets are big here too, and I wasn't really participating in them when I got here. I was definitely going like I think for about the first month I was there, I was here um, and getting some food, and it was nice. Definitely a little bit more expensive, um, but then you know winter came in, and I was like, oh, man. like the stuff, the the products that. I was buying the farmer's market were a lot cheaper just in my local grocery store. And it's, you know, those kind of like heartier items that were in season anyways, like potatoes and carrots and things. So I was like, there's really no point of me just like going to the farmer's market every single week. But now that spring is coming and like berries and figs and those things that just aren't as common in the grocery store are going to be more available. So that's one way I will, you know, uh, be engaging more local farming uh, it's just buying more in-season produce this summer um, oh, but I'm yeah. definitely yeah, aware of just like the price difference and being like mm, there are some things that I'm still going to 
ultimately buy at the grocery store because of the price difference. Yeah. That's real. Mm-hmm. Part of sustainability is also like price. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's true. But I do love the idea. I like hearing about you like eating um, what's in season. Mm, Number one, mm-hmm. that's freaking natural. And then I want to like that's true. That's, yeah, that's good. I'm I'm sure that does good things for your body too. You know what? You're probably right. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> like it knows. It's yeah, like, yes. something. Yeah, yeah like your because like in sync with the. I don't know. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. because like when it's cold and rainy outside you get cravings for like soups and stews mm-hmm. and things and then when it is hot outside you're like ah, I'm not gonna eat a stew right now like what are you talking about that's so yeah, fascinating exactly. oh my gosh I never yeah. thought about that yeah right oh my goodness yes yes um all right. So speaking of food and, you know, farmers markets and um, planting and growing food and food sovereignty, we we always have to discuss uh, plant based diets and things like that. So in the book, um, it brings up the fact that traditional African diets were plant based, uh, sustainably based and enslavement really impacted black food ways and their eating habits and sorry, eating habits. Um when you were reading this, did you have second thoughts or consider changing the ways in which you presently eat? Yes. Um, I think probably much to what we were just talking about, the idea of like eating more seasonally. Mm. I think I don't even t- really know what that, like what is in season. Like not really, really. And then especially maybe being in a new place, um, like, I don't know, just, like, adjusting, because, I, I, like I said, I think the body adjusts. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I also would like to, I want to, because, like, I want to learn how to, like, cook, cook, especially, like, some staple, like, dishes, but be able to, to, to do so in a way that's, like, super delicious and yeah. super nourishing um but also has like cultural roots so that like because sometimes okay has this ever happened to you like whenever you're like hanging out with people from a different culture and they're like sharing their food and like different aspects of just like their culture and language and blah 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 and then they ask you like oh hey what's like what's the traditional food you eat or you mm-hmm. feel like hey i want to like show you something and you're like ah. <laughs> yes <laughs> recently yeah, okay, mm-hmm. so, hey, tell, tell me about it. Sure, yeah, so um, during Easter here in Germany, um, I live in the southwestern portion of Germany, Baden-Württemberg, um, the people mm-hmm. here are called Schwabians, and they have wow. a traditional, yeah, they have a traditional Schwabian dish called Maltaschen, and huh. this... <laughs> It essentially is a very large uh, ravioli, and it's uh, sausage and spinach and seasonings encased in a pasta dough, and it's cooked, and then you eat it in a broth, um, either just like a chicken broth or, you know, 
whatever broth you have on hand. And my neighbors brought me some. You eat it on Good Friday, especially because there's a there's a whole backstory of why it was created and when it's when it should be eaten. And so since it was um, Easter and Good Friday, they brought me some because I knew I was here alone. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's so nice. It was so delicious. And my immediate thought was, well, of course, I need to find something to make them to say thank you. And I was like, what? is a traditional American Easter dish and I was talking to everybody and I was calling my family and they're like well I guess you can bake them a cake like that that was the general consensus and I was like all right well this is gonna bake them a cake yeah like there's yeah. just I'm like what I don't have anything for them I have no idea traditional yeah because well whenever you say like Easter I'm trying to think okay what did I eat on Easter I mean, I remember stuff like deviled eggs and maybe like right? roast, mm-hmm. and like, which might be different for them, but it's not like yeah. they're like, what's the backstory? Can you tell us the story about <laughs> Well, we have a lot of pig farms in the States, so I made you a ham. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ham. Right. Ooh. Yeah, and I was like, I am not going to make anybody deviled eggs. They would they would just be like, why? Why why are you doing this? <laughs> Especially on Good Fridays. Like... <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, uh... yeah. <laughs> I think this is such a byproduct of so one of the the perks that America gets as far as like the image of America. I don't know about really now, but probably still to some extent about like it being like this hot new cool place. It's the new world. It's always the latest, the greatest, the cool thing, mm-hmm. right? Part of <laughs> part of that, I I think part of the sacrifice that comes with that is because why because of um, I'm gonna say the slave trade forcefully removing so many of traditional uh, African culture from the enslaved Africans. They also massacring and genociding the natives. And then also creating the 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 um the concept of whiteness and it causes all of these Europeans to like sacrifice and rid themselves of their traditional European culture. Mm. That it's because it is so much about being like this new hot thing and it doesn't and so many of these like deep cultural like historical root things are lost whether by force by choice um yeah this is one of the many byproducts yeah what is tradition exactly i i agree with you 100 percent. yeah like it's Yeah. mm, yeah it's just not it's so bland. It's so bland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that there is some beauty when you go into different, like, the different sects of American culture. But I only, I feel like it, the beauty comes from being, like, I don't know. Because I don't want to say, I think, I do think, for the most part, white American culture is very bland. I do think that. Mm-hmm. I think, but I think all American cultures have have a little bit of that. Um, it's just like a newness to it, so it doesn't have these like root roots. Mm-hmm. But I think that the different sections have like more beauty and depth. 
But I think this has a whole, I don't know, American culture like does a disservice to all. The umbrella yeah. of American culture does a disservice. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that because yeah. in talking about food, it reminds me a lot of, you know, when you would get like paper advertisements for um, for grocery stores and mm-hmm. when there's like the Super Bowl going on or any holiday, they lay out those spreads of what, you know, the traditional American table would look like during those holidays. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of just what my family would also make and it's not anything like I don't know it's just like give me an idea so for I'm thinking Super Bowl which is you know a big event in the states there's always chicken wings and like Mm -hmm. uh, oh gosh celery and carrots I thought maybe this is just my family I'm thinking Anytime there's a major holiday, we'd always make the same things. We'd always make a turkey or a ham. We'd always have mashed potatoes. We would always have, you know, these platters. Sorry, your voice is like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just analyzing oh my, my whole life right now. Um... Oh, you don't seem to be satisfied. <laughs> I'm not unsatisfied. I am... Okay simply making a statement that we always have the exact same food i'm not that like i'm very happy with this food i'm not you know and i'm not like oh my god i can't believe we're you know doing mashed potatoes and gravy again (laughs) 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 no i I mean i wanted mashed potatoes i I knew that we were making mashed potatoes because it's a holiday like we always do this and so i guess that is the tradition of like we just always do the same thing every single meal got it yeah, which I don't know. Yeah, but okay. it's always the thing, same thing that's in the advertisements, and it is just yeah. There's meat in the middle. There's some vegetables around it. There's a salad that no one eats. There's always <laughs> right. Critical. The salad be for decoration. Nobody <laughs> eats that salad. Nobody eats that salad. Um, <laughs> and there's always a carrot and celery platter with a ranch dip. Mm. So okay, because when I think about like our, not just like specifically my family, but okay, yeah, I'm gonna say like family friends, Super Bowl parties. Just to be specific, it's like so this thing is like it's cultural, but it's not like some super deep <laughs> cultural roots, like <laughs> you know, like those little smoky sausages, like those oh little yeah. Mm-hmm. like barbecue sauce and then like some people call it rotel dip some people call it nachos it's rotel dip. Had, i call it nachos <laughs> no we call it a we just call it cheese dip but you always okay, use rotel right yeah okay yeah you always use rotel yeah and then definitely chicken wings and probably like a watermelon and, like a fruit platter right like it's stuff it's like it's cultural as in like you go to it, you expect it and it's good. Mm-hmm. But if somebody asks me why or like right. is there a story behind this, it's like, I don't oh know, just eat it. That's exactly what I want because um I don't know if you've ever seen the Great British Breaking Show. They uh-huh. it's so interesting because not only do they you know they, they make the food, but they it's not just sweets, it's also savory dishes and like, you know, like Sometimes they just make a tray bake of, like, what you would cook your family for dinner one night. And they go into, like, 
why the tray bake is significant to the British culture and like where it originated. And, you know, these are these nuns that make it every day for their community. Like they have a backstory for all these foods and they explain it to you. You get to learn. And it's just like, oh, that's so cool. Like where, where did we get Rotel dip? Who was Rotel? <laughs> Who was Velveeta? Why is it Velveeta? Why are they putting two percent milk in it now? <laughs> like what? <laughs> That's really funny. That's funny because I think it always is like. <laughs> it's, it's funny. In the last ten years, they started adding milk, and so I can no longer have the cheese dip when I go home, and it's very upsetting. And I they need to go oh, back to that fake stuff. Before? Probably some oh, synthetic. the actual cheese, you mean? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. yes. That was not real food. We know that was not real, real it, food. It's not. But it's, it's not. And your stomach is like, girl, no. But <laughs> your mouth is like, yeah, girl, yes. Exactly. It's very tasty. It's very tasty. <laughs> this is terrible. Oh, my God. So, the, one of the, so this chapter quotes June Jordan saying, we are the ones we have been waiting for. Mm-hmm. If this is true, what are you willing to do to create a thriving future for the community? Yeah, this is a question I ask myself a lot. Um, yeah. I do definitely agree that Black, Brown, Indigenous, and people of color are going to be the ones at the forefront of this movement as they have been for all these years of changing our society to be what we ideally want it to be um, because it's so easy to go with the status quo. Uh, One of the questions I often ask myself is, or I guess one of the things I get told as a younger person is that I'm very idealistic and, you know, like, once I have kids or, you know, once some, some life event happens, I'll no longer think this way. My mind will change. And I often think about this because I personally feel that my beliefs are just basic human rights for all of humanity. And at what point will I just suddenly not care about that? Um, And I don't know if it's because the people that are talking to me are white and or European or Mm. just because, you know, they maybe didn't have that fire and they didn't have that need to keep pushing. So I I think about this a lot, but um, we as uh, BIPOC people have a greater need to keep pushing and keep going um to create our future that protects us essentially and so we have to be the ones to continually just be here and have a voice and just keep talking so yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i think you make a really good point i actually came across a quote this um this past week actually and so it reminded me, like, can you talk about it? Um, let me find it. So this is um, another. Okay, actually, it's another, you know, it's Winston Churchill. So another, you know, white European mm. man of a certain time. But he has this quote that says, if you are not liberal when you are 25, you have no heart. And if you are not conservative by the time you're 35, you have no brain. Mm? 
Yeah, which is like right in alignment with what you're saying of like, yeah, you're you're young and idealistic, but as you get older, you know, you'll be more conservative and things. And I think that the, uh, like you said, the task is to never get so rigid Mm -hmm. and conservative that, you know, we start to think that people don't deserve basic human decency and and rights. Right. yeah, yeah, no, that's a really good point. I think I think there is something to the fact that they are white people, white, you know, being American or European, mm-hmm. because your language is perfect about not being as close or in the fire, because mm. um, we could see more liberal, radical, whatever, because we are closer to the actual heat, opposed to somebody who can maybe, like, look over the hill at it, like, oh, man, that's tough over there, but not right. feeling it yeah right yeah yeah absolutely absolutely agree with that I think that yeah. was why Portland was so um I think that was one of the main reasons why Portland was so active in the protests against George Floyd is because just the 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 makeup of the community is very young it's very you know hipster to use their own terminology um and you know it's a lot of young white people and they're like, yeah, we're going to be here. We're going to do this. Why not? We, we're in a pandemic. We've got this free time. So let's uh, go out and uh, protest every single night. And then, you know, mm-hmm. throw fireworks at the Justice Center and, you know, things like that. So it just the makeup of the city makes sense for that quote to work mm-hmm. out exactly. Because then you go to work with the people that are 35 and older and they're like, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. It's terrible. They're destroying those buildings. <laughs> right. It's completely different. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. So, um, I think I'm going to borrow from what you said. I'm mm-hmm. just making this number one long-term commitment to um, never getting so comfortable mm-hmm. that um, I can't, I don't have empathy for another human being. Yeah. And also just wanted to make sure I, like, operationalize um, some of my ideas so that they exist beyond, you know, uh, a conversation or a space in my head or even a space in my notebook. But there are, like, actual physical places that people can go to and and experience these things like safety, like getting your mm. basic uh, needs met, like community, things like that. So I just, just really want to live out my politics. And I think these last few years have been, have been about me um, coming into to my politics and shaping what, what I believe. Mm-hmm. And and now I'm at a point where okay of course of course I continue to refine that but also express that externally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be um, what I want to create for the the future of, of, of the community. Love that. Yeah, absolutely love that. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of ideals and solidifying your stance, all right, it's vital that we talk about the Cointel program and how the federal government stance was that the Black Panther Party was radicals and that they were destroying America, in a sense, 
So what do you think the U.S. would look like today if America hadn't taken that stance, hadn't created that program that infiltrated and effectively tried to destroy the Black Panther Party? I think that... I think that... um... Part of the the Black Panther Party was radical, and I think that that's actually a positive thing. But I think yes. naturally, if it hadn't been interrupted, then it would have morphed into um, creating more. Um, I don't really know how to say this, but it would have. I think it would have morphed and created more like legitimate institutions and maybe even Mm. offices in the bureaucratic system to Mm -hmm. help really shape and move this country forward so even though the black panther party was so demonized it still very much helped shape like like the WIC program it helped shape things like food security and you know we have the breakfast program stuff like that right and even this idea of policing the police which is where the the party was first from i think we could have I think it could have been a meeting of the minds if, um, you know, the government really would have sat down with this party and helped allow these ideals to shape policy in the structures of society. Yeah. And I think we would be at a, a more progressive place in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it really could have morphed into something positive had it not been dismantled and so demonized. Um, because I think it would have been a natural kind of, if you will, maturation period where it wouldn't be so much like guns in the street, even though I'm for that, um, <laughs> it would have been able to like, okay, cool. I have my guns in the street if need be, but let's mm-hmm. like sit down and have a, a meeting first. Right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. How about you? No, I, wow. I 100% agree with everything you said for sure. For sure. Because the Black Panther Party was one of those parties that was growing exponentially because it just made sense it was doing it was creating those programs that people needed access to that they didn't have that the government wasn't the government was not doing their job and providing for their people and the black panther party was filling that role and they were successful and so that was threatening and so of course they were like well this is something we don't understand Let's shut it down instead of, like you said, having having that sit down and going through the programs that could benefit everyone. And I mean, like just like you said, they adopted um, so many programs because of the Black Panther Party that changed the U.S. and helps people today. Um, I also think that they would have, you know, continued to expand, had more operations and when you talk about programs, it reminds me of we do this till we free us. And that was one of the the parts talking about, you know, abolition work is working on programs that provide for the community. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, like you said, we would have, we definitely would have been in a, a more progressive place. Yeah. For sure. mm-hmm. yeah. 100%. Yeah. Do you think we're going to see a rise? So post pandemic, whatever that means do you, are yeah. we gonna see a rise in number one food insecurity or like that's kind of like basic level needs insecurity and then a new kind of resurgence or re-emergence of something like a black panther party or something like this very much like a community organization on, on some form by the people i think there there already has been 
um, more food insecurity than what they are probably reporting and what people fully understand. I don't really... I feel like those statistics may not be... They may not be capturing everyone they need to be, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I absolutely think there will continue to be more food insecurity just based on how based on the current trajectory of what we're seeing based on just the way jobs are not available I guess I don't even want to say available just we saw how the job market crashed at the start of the pandemic and it's made a comeback but I, the stories that I've been reading are the jobs that are making comeback are not as high of quality in terms of being full-time, offering benefits, offering um, 401k type of programs. And so that level of uh, financial security and health insurance is going to be lacking in a lot of people's lives, which is definitely a form of insecurity. I am hopeful that there will be more programs and I'm hopeful that people will come together and try to create solutions for this issue. For example, I know um, Amazon Warehouse was voting on unionizing. And of course, something happened with the vote and I think the vote got thrown out or something like that. Uh, So... I believe the ideas are there. I'm just hopeful that the people will come together to execute them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a a great. Really quick, when you say the people, who are the people? Everybody else but us. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much of what we usually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Man, you're right. I think that's because at the end of the day, I know it's still going to be BIPOC people that are pushing these agendas and creating these programs, but they also need the support of white people as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, 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 listen, I keep but reading studies. We need their monies. That's, well, yeah, that's true. That, yeah, that's true. I think there are some white people that get it, or, or at least I'm going to say, I think there are a lot of white people that are trying to get it and that are yeah. actually doing the labor to try to get it, not the people that just like give lip service. Mm. But I keep reading reading um, research that says all you need is 3 to 4% of a population to enact mass level change. What? Uh, yeah, yeah. That's not bad. Okay. At all. At wow. all. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's... Yeah, okay. Doing yeah, it. Doing that's it. um super encouraging. Mm-hmm. We just have yeah. to tell people there's free food, and then boom, we got it. <laughs> that's all you need. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. We're also mm. food motivated. Wow, uh, three to four percent—that is so low. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. Okay, right? Yeah, it's like okay, we could do that whenever it's like we have to have eighty percent of the people and well, right. like, oh. Yeah. yeah. Like, okay, me and my homies. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. 
Today's discussion was based on the study guide we created for this podcast. The study guide is free, and if you would like access, the link is included in the show notes. And then we should say, like, bye, have a nice day, or something like that. <laughs> like, a goodbye, you know? Like a yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> ugh, we should be like, destroy capitalism. <laughs> 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 Let's do it.